Yes. Uh, welcome to this uh, uh, very exciting topic and the secret life of Nairobi. Uh, and on behalf of SWEET, the Norwegian Organization for Gender and Sexual Diversity, also Nakishis, I have the distinct of welcoming you all to also Pride and Pride House. And this year, for the very, very first time, we are here at Jomstorget, and it's arranged in cooperation by Amnesty, Queer Youth Norway, Queer World, and many other organizations. And Pride House is also Norway's largest arena for queer politics, with over 80 events in the last seven days. So it's quite amazing. Um, and now, luckily for you, I'm not going to speak very much longer, and I will just introduce you to Sian, and I will see if I can remember his very long title. Uh, I have it somewhere here. No, 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 Sian, you just have to come up. I'm very bad at this. But welcome, and have fun. Yes. Thank you very much. Um, my name is Sian Antonsen. I'm the board chairperson of Norwegian Council for Africa, or Pellis World of Africa. Um, I'm very pleased to be here. I am so excited that you are here in this sauna and ready to toast with us. Um, I went to Kenya in 2010 to work with the Gay and Lesbian Coalition of Kenya, where I met Dennis Ndioka, and was so impressed. Uh, he's a LGBT activist, he's a sex worker activist, he's worked for people living with HIV and AIDS, women, you name it. He was a presidential candidate in 2013. He has more than 8,000 followers on Twitter. You should definitely follow him. Um, and he's become a father. <laughs> Please give a round of Big round of applause for the Thank you very much, Stian. Welcome to Norway. Thank you to a hot sauna. <laughs> very, very hot. <laughs> How's the weather like in Nairobi? Uh, so it's chilly season now. We have two, three months of uh, cold weather, so changing from that to this oven is quite—it's <laughs> <laughs> quite something. Um, so Dennis just landed um, a few hours ago, um, but thank you so much for being here with us. Uh, we have some forty-five minutes here, uh, and you'll also be able to 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 ask a few questions at the end. Um, but we call this uh, this event the Secret Gay Life of Nairobi. Now, when we hear of you know, LGBT news from Africa, it's usually a very sad story. You know, we hear about people living very harsh lives. Um, so I wanted to start asking you, um, you're open, you're queer in Nairobi. Um, what is it like? Um, so I'll start with a bit of history about myself. Um, so I've been a queer activist for the past 10 years or so. And like everybody else, I started uh, in the closet, uh, if I can call it that. Uh, the transition from being uh, a closet, uh, queer journalist, writing articles as in pseudonyms or fake names, uh, or giving interviews 
um, without showing my face uh, to now where I can be public uh, and go on TV was quite a learning curve for myself. Um, it is not easy. There were challenges, especially when I was coming out. Um, I faced quite a lot of stigma, both from my parents, uh, from my family. Uh, the school where I was studying, um, at one point in the semester, I was chased away. Um, and also faced a couple of evictions. Uh, it was not quite easy uh, growing up as queer. And it's a story that is resonant with a lot of gay people, especially in Nairobi. Um, it is not easy. We continue to hear stories of evictions. We continue to hear stories of lesbians being threatened with sexual assault. Uh, there's a lot of blackmail that is being perpetuated by the police um, who are using laws to target uh, queer people. And we have seen an upsurge of suicide, and depression, and mental issues uh, among LGBT persons. So it's quite, it's, it's, it's that story that we are having at the moment. But there are also stories of positivity. We're seeing a lot of queer women coming out, a lot of trans organizing. Uh, We're seeing a shift, if I can say, in how LGBT people are portrayed by the media. More and more people are coming out. Social media has really supported people to own and claim spaces. Uh, we are seeing how the arts are being used to advocate for queer rights. So it's that kind of story that a narrative that is currently prevalent. And and one such example is is a movie that maybe some of you have heard about, which is called Rafiki. Um, Rafiki means friend in in Swahili, and this portrays uh, a lesbian love story. Um, can you tell us a bit about how that conversation has been in, in Kenya? So the producer of Rafiki, Wanuri Kanuri, um, is quite a personal friend of mine. So when she was starting out, uh, she told me that she wanted to just write a love story. And that was it. It was a love story of two young girls who fall in love as they go through high school, as you know, they go into maturity and teenage life. And the story was inspired by a book in Uganda called Jambula Tree, which was also a story about two young girls who fall in love. So she went through the whole process of getting uh, approval from the Kenya Film Classification Board. As a director, you have to get certain permits, if I can call it that. You have to give a synopsis of the story to the board. We then have to review it previously, then give you the permit and the go-ahead to go do the movie. Here's one thing that people do not know. So she wrote a love story, and she gave the synopsis to the board to look at. And because the ending was a powerful story of two women falling in love and living happily ever after, the board told her, no, the story must be ending in depression, in somebody getting killed, in one of the girls being raped, uh, a suicide, and she refused. She said, no, this is a love story, and it needs to be told. So she went ahead and did the story the way she had envisioned it. So when it came out, and the film board saw the, the whole story, and that nothing had changed, especially the end. That is when they brought out the issue. That is when they said, we are banning the movie. So the movie was banned not because it was a love story of two women. It's because it did not end in death. 
it did not end in sadness. And so when the story came out, there was the whole furor and the board bandage. Uh, so she uh, got summons to appear before the board to explain her story. Uh, distribution and showing in Kenya was also banned. Uh, but then it was during that time that the Cannes Film Festival was happening and then it was selected to just give it publicity around how Kenya is stifling, first of all, artistic talent, but also questioning how, how are LGBT people portrayed in the media? Not every story should end in death or in disaster. It could actually be a happy ever after. So at the moment, the film continues to be banned. Uh, it has received quite a few awards and media play out there, but it is sad that the story that was made for and by Kenyans are not being watched for and by Kenyans. It's quite fascinating how it's okay to portray a minority as long as you, you know, depict them in a very sad way. Um, there is there is another famous character from Kenya called Binawanga Wenenana. He was, uh, by the Times, um, uh, awarded to be one of the 100 most influential people a few years ago. Um, how has his coming out of the closet sort of affected um, sort of um, the, the image of gay people in, in Kenya? Um, Binyavanga's being gay was an open secret. Uh, he was an artist, a writer, and he was open about his sexuality even from a long time ago. So the fact that he took to write a story and then in the last bit come out as gay was the whole surprise, you know. Like <laughs> so there are rumors about you, you know, you've never confirmed, but we can see you. But then him taking the decision and saying, finally I am actually gay was what sparked conversation that this respected, well-known, artistic, well-awarded Kenyan, public Kenyan has come out as gay, was like major, you know, there was so much media scrutiny and spotlighting. Um, so he gave a couple of interviews, talk about his story. Um, and up to now, where he's used his social media platforms, he's become one more vocal around queer issues. Uh, he's participated more and more public spaces uh, where he speaks about his coming out story. And of course, you know, his personal life has played out in the media. It's, it's also social media. His fight with depression, suicide, um, issues around with Kwani Trust that he founded. Um, so we are trying to reach out to him. Um, I know sometimes we, we face so much internally. We do not think and question and worry about our mental health that it becomes a boiling pot, you know. So it, a lot of things come out, and I think we're seeing that in uh, in Bilibana. Um There are people who dismissed him as a charlatan. Um, you know, social media has been very cruel to him. Uh, when he came out as living with HIV, you know, people were commenting, it's a sign from God, you know, it's, it's punishment from God that, you know, this is living a homosexual life, and therefore, this is what you deserve. And you see that, and it, you know, it, boils, you know it, it, it affects us. As much as we may say we are strong as activists, as queer persons, you know, being told certain things 
really depresses us. And I think we are in those spaces where uh, we need to admit our weaknesses and our, you know, uh, how emotional we can be, and especially uh, what people think about us is quite important, but not necessarily for our well-being. And, and even though there's a lot of you know criticism on on social media and elsewhere, there's still this this space where um, it's possible to to be to be open and gay. Um, that space you, you, you do not find in, in Uganda, in DRC, and, and recently you've seen this influx of, of, of refugees, LGBT refugees. How, uh, tell us a bit about that. Um, so the initial uh, gay lesbian refugees who came to Kenya, came to Kenya in 2007. People don't know about this. Um, and actually the first person, the first queer refugee to arrive in Kenya was the late David Kato, who was killed in Uganda a couple of years after that. So David Kato, Kasha Jacqueline, and a couple of other Ugandan queer activists uh, were forced out of Uganda uh, after one of their meetings was raided by police. Uh, they received a lot of death threats, and therefore they had to leave. Uh, it was during that time when emergency response was just a, a concept. Uh, we didn't know what to do. So the first reaction, the first line, the first thing they had to do was leave the country. You guys are being targeted by police. Uh, their names were published in tabloids. Therefore, they came to Kenya. Uh, they were hosted by the Gay and Lesbian Coalition of Kenya uh, for some days until the heat subsided. Couple of years, fast forward, we have the anti-homosexuality bill that among other things proposed the death penalty for certain homosexual acts between uh, consenting adults. And life became unbearable. Um, the president and his ministers uh, had leeway to continue to do raids on LGBT meetings. Uh, the media really sustained a very negative and stereotypical image of homosexuals as recruiters, as child rapists, as people who are out to destroy the moral fiber of uh, Uganda. And this led to a lot of queer people having to flee for persecution. And it was, I think, the first documented case in the world of how you know, sexual orientation was a basis for fleeing, was a basis for asylum seeking. So two, three years, we saw an influx of LGBT refugees coming to Kenya, um, but they're coming to Kenya for safety. Uh, they're coming to Kenya to escape, you know, how the environment have been. And they continue coming, streaming in, streaming in, and it became a humanitarian crisis um, because then other countries within the area, DRC, for example, and Tanzania, also started started experiencing this. But then it's funny they're coming to Kenya where. Kenya itself is not safe. It's not also safe for them. Um, there was the whole narrative that Kenya was more tolerant, but then that has changed. Um, and up to now, we have so many uh, refugees in camps. The government, in a couple of months ago, decided to do, out of concern for terrorism, to issue an edict that all refugees must now be in camps. 
So no refugee can come to a city, no refugee can rent a house. They all have to go back to Kakuma and that, that refugee comes, stay there until, you know, they get support. So this was not to be affected the LGBT refugees, but also other refugees. So it wasn't specific to LGBT. So right now they are in the camps, surviving them. Uh, there was a pride a couple of days ago. And after the pride event, uh, one trans refugee was attacked. And there was also uh, a warning issued to them that they're going to be uh, targeted, that they're going to be killed one by one, just because they marched in a, in a pride event at the camp. Um, there are still humanitarian issues around refugeeism, uh, which we have not addressed. And it is even more specific to queer uh, refugees. One is the whole social economic power and how uh, being a refugee deprives you of certain rights, especially social economic. And what does this mean? We've seen most of them engaging in sex work. We've seen most of them engaging in risky sexual behavior. Uh, most of them fall victims to more blackmail from more police, from even our own communities, okay? And to even to predatory behavior uh, from sadly, our own. So there's that crisis that we are hoping we can deal with. But the larger crisis of how, you know, they are running away, uh, they are now refugees, asylum seekers. Um, so we don't have the solutions to all the answers, uh, but we are working towards that. And how is the, the legal situation in, in Kenya? And what is happening? Um, so at the moment, um, there are two court cases happening that were brought on by LGBT activists. Uh, one was an issue around the name, uh, where the National Gay and Lesbian Human Rights Commission went to court after they were denied registration on account of having the word gay and lesbian in their name to be registered legally as an organization. The other case was about how police were using anal exam, forced anal exam as evidence in cases that involved same-sex sexuality. So if Stian and I are arrested um, without being caught in the act, we could be forced to have annual exams done that then will be used as a basis in our persecution. So we challenge that. We say, you know, annual exam cannot and should not be used because they are only being used on men, okay? They're not being used on other people. They're only being used on suspected gay men. We won that case, thankfully. It was a two, three year process of court delays, of evidence, of what have you. Um, the name case we also won because the, the court ruled that having the word gay and lesbian is in our right. It's our right to have that name and to be registered under that name. But the government has been playing delay tactics. So they have said they're going to appeal. They have every right to appeal. So every time we go, it's delay, delay. They're told, come back for another date, come back for another date. And it has been going on for two years now. We were allowed to register in 2015, I think. But up to now, we do not have a certificate. So it's a delay tactic. Um, also during that same time, we decided now to challenge section 162 to 165 of the penal code that criminalizes same-sex sexuality. The case was had in April before a three-judge bench. Ruling was expected in April 25th. 
we went back, but according to the government, delay again. So rumors have it that we've won the case. The three-judge panel have actually ruled in our favor. But then to forestall that judgment being given in court, what the government did, so the three judges were transferred before the ruling was done. So right now, our major headache is trying to get the three judges to come to Nairobi to write, to give us the ruling in paper. But then one has been transferred to Kisumu, another one has been transferred to Mombasa. So getting all the three of them, because they have to give us that ruling as three judges, has been our difficulty. And we came to realize, we actually were later told that that was actually a government ploy, okay, to drag this case on and on for years until the next election when we're going to have a new regime that will probably not even bother with that court case. Um, some of the queer activists who petitioned the government have received death threats. Uh, they have alleged that there are people following them, they're getting funny, funny phone calls. So there are those diversionary and threatening acts that the government is trying to to do to these people, to these individuals, as part of, you know, saying, you know, this court case cannot be won, not by these homosexuals and lesbians. Um, there is sustained uh, anti-gay rhetoric being happening. Um, last, last week, but one, um, there was an anti-gay, anti-abortion, anti-sexual reproductive symposium, national symposium, that was opened by the First Lady and half of the sessions were about anti-homosexuality, about how money has been poured into Kenya uh, by these activists to drive the homosexual agenda, about how homosexuals are recruiters. And this was a conference opened by the First Lady of Kenya. So there is something happening. We can see what it is, we can map out, we can know that people are, people are you know, afraid of what these court rulings will say. And therefore, they are engaging in diversionary tactics. And that's a reality. That's the government that you are fighting with every single day. We don't know when the court ruling will be done. Uh, so we are in limbo, as with everybody else. Uh, but what you are seeing is just this show, uh, funny, funny things happening in the air that we suspect could be employed by government. The, the theme for this year's Pride, Oslo Pride, is, is family. So, um, you coming out and being, you know, one of the most vocal LGBT activists in Kenya, how, how did your family react? <laughs> um, like everybody else's family, um, it was initial shock and, and horror. Um, but then, to most of them who I've talked to later, they've always said, you know, we've always suspected you, like, growing up, we knew you were different. Uh, we just didn't know it was you being gay, but we just knew you were different. Um, and apart from the initial shock and horror, um, it was just being ostracized. Uh, I could not be invited to family meetings, for example. Uh, I found out that most of the, my other family members were praying for me. Um, some even suggested I should uh, be rebaptized. Um, thankfully, I wasn't living with them, so I wasn't under their, their roof, so they couldn't do some of these things that they had planned to do. 
Um, I do remember uh, one of my uh, grandmother from my father's side um, going back to the village, came back with a girl, and so her story was that since you live alone, there's this girl from our other home state, she's come to Nairobi and she's looking for a job as a housemaid. Perhaps she could be a housemaid. Okay? So I knew clearly what being a housemaid meant. Okay? So she was like, no, she's come to Nairobi, she doesn't have a place to stay, maybe she can stay with you for a couple of days, and she's also working and cleaning your house. So there was those funny, you know, tactics and ambitious plans to, to deal with, with my sexuality. Um, but right now, it's, they, they've come to accept. Um, but it has been a long process, uh, because also to them, I actually came to realize it was difficult because they were being gossiped about. Uh, I went on TV, I was on TV on radio, so they're always being pointed out. Oh look, your son is the one on TV speaking about homosexuality, he's a homosexual. So it is my grandfather who later came and told me that um, as much as they have accepted me as being gay, that they themselves suffered. And I never knew this. I never knew that they too were struggling the same way I was struggling. That they too faced rejection, they too faced gossip. And you know, we live in very tight-knit communities. So we know whose son is gay, we know whose daughter is lesbian, and we talk about their family, we talk about. So they too suffered um, some aspect of that ostracization. Um, so they had also demons to deal with in the accepting of me, in the accepting of me being public. To a point that, you know, my grandmother once sat me down and said, it's okay for you to be gay, but please don't go to TV. Because we just, we just couldn't handle the gossip. I cannot go back and see to the women in the village because um, the gossip now is not even about you, you know. So uh, they too suffered. And I think the fact that they have come to accept me, um, it was a learning process, it was a learning curve for them. And I appreciate them that, you know, uh, that they too have felt um, the need to accept me, despite whatever people will say. Um, and you know, they, they really did struggle. The, they really did struggle, and I think I should have made it easier for them also to deal with them having a gay son or relative or, or uncle. One of the most controversial um, topics when, when, when sort of homosexuality is on the table is homosexuality and children. Um, also here in Norway. Um, you have a son. Um, how, how are the reactions from, you know, from the gay community, from, from everyone else? Um, so I've had this conversation with you, Stian. Um, <laughs> are you, you going to make fun of me now? <laughs> Um, so listen, um, I naturally had uh, wanted children, uh, whether I'm gay or straight or whatever, what have you. So this was a decision, very painful, long year process of, you know, talking to a surrogate uh, um, a woman who, you know, agreed to surrogate the baby. Um, I, I really naturally uh, wanted to have children, so it was 
that that I wanted to, that's why I made that decision to actually go ahead and, and have kids. But also, uh, from an activist point of view, um, the Children's Act of Kenya, uh, Cap 2, verse 1, is the only law in Kenya that stipulates and explicitly mentions homosexuals should not adopt children. Leave alone even the penal code that doesn't even mention homosexuality or sodomy or what have you. The word homosexual is used once and only once in Kenya's law under the Adoption Act. So this for me was also a battleground. If you are going to go to courts for, for all other rights, we might as well go to courts for those laws that explicitly mention us. So I was getting a baby for two reasons. One, because I wanted, but also because I wanted to challenge uh, two things. One, the misconception that gay people cannot have babies, that you know, we cannot make fit parents. That is absolutely bullshit. Secondly, um, I'm going to use this um, precedent in order to challenge, uh, we're having this conversation with some of the human rights organizations. Let us, if you're going to go for all the laws that target us, let us also go for these laws that explicitly deny us not only our basic human rights, but also our right to father, our right to adopt children. Children that you straight people have been having and not providing for, have been having and letting them, you know, roam out on the street and fill these children's home. So why shouldn't I, a person who's capable of raising financially, socially, emotionally, blah, 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 why should I be denied, be denied that chance to raise a child which is devoid of parental care simply because I'm gay or lesbian? It's, it's a powerful uh, campaign tool, and I think we should be using such uh, precedents to go after these laws and, and challenge and say, listen, we have a children's crisis. Um, there are many, many children who are born without parents, who, who live on the streets, Yet you have a population that is capable, more than capable, and more than willing to raise them. But then the law is against them. Why? Just because they're gay. Um, so we're, we're trying to challenge these things. And I think it's important if we can, we all have this mass of people doing, you know, and wishing to have children. I've talked to so many uh, queer people who are saying, I really want to have children, I really want to adopt, but then it's a gray area, I don't know how to go about it. So just showing people how it is done, you know, is the first step, I think. Um, just so for your information, this, this will also be podcasted. You can all listen to it, unless I spill water on this thing right here. Um, we're we're going to open a bit for, for Q&A. Um, so if you have any questions, just um, come up here. And then we have we have time for um, a few questions. Um, there's um, um, uh, I can also mention that uh, in in Marsha Johnson tomorrow there's going to be um, another panel discussion where where Dennis will will take part. Um, and um, it's about um, pets and periods. So if you wonder why this man carries pads in his purse, in his man bag, uh, you can you can come to Marsha P. Johnson tomorrow at 3 p.m. Um, but we won't talk about that now. <laughs> um, 
there's, you know, when we talk about um, global LGBT rights and, and specifically in Africa, uh, and, and when people want to, you know, do something, um, there's this fine line because if you get too much involved, um, the the message back is that you know, oh, this is you know, white imperialism, blah blah blah. So, what what can you do if there's anything you want to do to support the fight that's happening now in Kenya? Um, what can people do? What should should they not do? <laughs> Listen to the people in the ground. Um, I think that's really important. Um, it's fine to have you know these big campaigns, pride and, and what have you, things that may not necessarily uh, be wonderful back home. Uh, so first thing is to listen, talk to the activists on the ground, hear what they tell you is a good strategy to go with. Um, I think uh, one of the key things that allies and partners should do is listen, talk and listen and understand uh, when an activist tells you, listen, um, you can have your gay pride back in your country, but that will not resonate back home, okay? Therefore, it's important to appreciate the strategies that are being used by the activists on the ground. Support those. Um, it's wonderful because, you know, um, more outreaches, more activities that are flamboyant, are easy to see and support, but then we've seen the backlash against this has been tremendous. But a strategy like going to court, which takes years, time, patience, can be a very boring thing to pitch. Okay? Guys want pride, want to see rainbow flags on the street. But then, honey, listen, that you may not do in a rural place in Zimbabwe, you know. Uh, it's impractical to even do that. Um, there's wonderful strategy by wonderful queer activists. Learn, uh, go online. These days, everything, just search what is happening in Botswana, for example. Search what is happening in Rwanda, in uh, Cameroon, and how different activists are using different strategies, and that one size does not fit all mold. There are wonderful stories coming out, stories that are not being captured. Uh, stories that should be told out in the public world. Um, support also small queer organizing. Um, as much as uh, it's, it's all about mobilization, we need to support queer organizing in whatever simple way, financially, through materials, to support, through strategic alliances. All these are wonderful things that we can look and should commit to doing. Uh, but most importantly, let the activism be done by the people on the ground. Um, you know, it's, it's important to appreciate that there are spaces that they are leading and that they should be the leaders. So you can support from, you know, in whatever way. Uh, and let them be the face of that movement, of that activism, and respecting that ideology of homegrown solutions to our homegrown issues. So how, how do you change the minds in the hearts of, of people. How, how do you work? How do you sort of change people's view on this? Uh, so, well, I do a lot of things. Uh, one is getting babies, for example. Um, but, <laughs> but I do, you know, I do very little, 
there's, there are wonderful activists, very brave work activists who are, who are doing tremendous work on the ground. Uh, that, you know, I am just part of that system. I am doing the little that I can do. The guys in the court case are doing whatever it is that they're doing. The guys providing health, health and HIV services are doing whatever it is that they're doing. And it is these little pockets, pockets of work, change that we are creating, a bigger change too. Um, I'll consider it like a masterpiece. So at first it looks so bad, it looks chaotic, somebody's doing health, somebody else is doing human rights, somebody else is doing the art, somebody else is doing personal story, other people are getting babies, other people are not getting babies. But then you need to look back, I take a step back, and then look at this big, wonderful masterpiece that you've created that is going on. And I think that's what is happening on the ground. Now, like you, we need to just look at it and appreciate and say we've got wonderful work being done and we should appreciate and see how this will ultimately it's not a one of the it will take years to change people's mindset we can change the law in a day immediately but then to change people's perceptions and minds and attitudes takes time and whether i see that in my lifetime or somebody else's lifetime you know i'm glad that i was part of that movement of that change and I think that's what fulfills me. That's you know, the driving force and passion of what I do. Beautiful. Um, are there any questions for this masterpiece here? <laughs> just come here and speak into the microphone um, just for the podcast. Hello? Okay. Um, since we talked about, uh, you talked about supporting the people on the ground, but how do you feel about also governments when they talk together also bringing up human rights and pressuring it that way. Um, do you feel that would then be too much direct involvement and kind of what you talk about the imperialist thought or is that also some a strategy you approve of? You want to answer? Okay. Uh, I'll answer your question by this. I'll give you an example. A couple of years ago um, when Robert Mugge was in power one of the strategies that the UK allegedly was saying was going to employ was to cut off funding. Uh, this is development funding, funding for so many other key issues. And then it became an issue because um, guys were saying, listen, the Western people, the allies, you know, all these powers are now tying development aid, which is much more important to our people and is needed for the country to gay rights. They are saying, if you do not give people gay rights, they are going to cut off uh, major funding. Listen, African governments, you know, majority of them rely on this foreign aid. It was a tactic that was very reactionary. It wasn't well thought out, I think, because then it brought more issues than it did solutions. Um, we saw a lot of backlash of governments pushing back and saying, eh, these people now have gone to the key government, they have permeated the Western allies, they are even now in development, they are saying if we do not accept gay marriages, we are going to miss out on funding. And this is what politicians worked with. This is what they used to work up people with. They are saying, listen, our country is suffering, we, are, we, we do not have money for medication, for money for... To, to give to schools because we've refused same-sex marriages. And that infuriated people. So it was, a, it was a, 
it was a plan, it was a strategy that will, you know, face more backlash as opposed to did something more. Uh, we saw also a couple of uh, African governments also saying this rhetoric. Um, and then I realized, wait, did the UK consult at least people on the ground to understand what the issues were? Did you consult to know what you were going to effect by saying that we are tying development aid to same-sex sexualities? Um, it's important to, there are different strategies that you can employ with governments and people in authority. But then, listen and carefully measure what such a strategy can do. It can actually be, bring more harm than good. Um, and listen, do we really want to, to tie development aid to same-sex marriages? No, I don't think uh, that will further alienate us from the larger conversation we should be having. Um, I think we should be more forceful in engaging governments through backdoor and more dialogues and creating, you know, pockets of pockets of dialogue within key sectors in government, key sectors in the political field, who we can then engage with, who we can then in backdoor policies. These things are things you do not do publicly. You meet with them, engage with them, and then you know, work around that. But then tying it to, you know, we, we want to give you aid because you refused to register same-sex marriages, then that strategy, that tactic does not necessarily work. And which is funny enough, because a statement was issued by around 100 queer activists from Africa denouncing the UK and other governments that wanted to tie development aid to same-sex marriages. Thank you. Um, I see someone's looking at me very strictly, so we'll have one very, very short question and answer. And then, uh, <laughs> um, Dennis will be here, so you, you can talk to him. Okay, um, who is actually, can we have three, if they just ask them? Three more minutes. Yeah, and then you'll just respond to them, yeah. So if you all just come here, Tuhina, Ulawandaya, and you, just say your questions, and then he'll just, Dennis will just sum up. Okay, um, you can start. Okay, let's your first say that it's wonderful to see you here. Um, and uh, I've been to a gay nightclub in Nairobi. Um, there was absolutely nothing secret about it. Uh, it was quite a wonderful experience. And I've also been with people on the ground in Pika, uh, going out, um, you know, um, taking a prep to people so that gay men could have illegal sex with the blessing of the authorities. Uh, can you uh, explain such a paradox? Um, well, the dominant narrative has been around gay men and men who have sex with men. But then you're seeing lesbian, bisexual, and queer women of color coming up and saying, no, our issues is not uh, HIV or issues not PrEP, uh, we have much more broader issues and we should not be considered as the population. Same with the trans movement, which has come out very, very strongly, you know, to categorically say, you know, we are not part of, you know, the gay movement, we are a trans movement. Going back to the masterpiece, um, my, my personal position has always been, it's fine for all this um, this 
disruption and, and chaos and, 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 and people owning spaces that you know, traditionally have been owned by other people. Um, what I probably do not condone is those personal attacks that any other movement has, you know, the mass link, the shaming, the, the what have you. Um, let each movement decide for its own cause, its own path, its own position and identity, and we should appreciate and support each one of them in that way. Uh, let people own and claim spaces that, you know, they feel that these are our spaces. And then, as any other masterful artist, step back and look at all that chaos and be like, wow, this is wonderful masterpiece. And appreciate that. I, I do appreciate how you're seeing a stronger trans movement happening in Africa. The queer women and lesbians are coming out strongly and forcefully. And that's wonderful. We should be appreciating the chaos. I don't want a boring movement that doesn't have drama. You know, I really want to sign up for that. I, I want I want chaos. I want I want people to be more and more vibrant and, and own those spaces and claim possession of those. Um, Diaspora people. Um, there are many, many allies. Uh, unfortunately, we've never mapped out allies. Okay, and there are wonderful allies out there who are doing wonderful work. But then they are underrepresented. They are not uh, highlighted. And I think, on a personal level, it's what you do. It's a conversation you have with somebody else back here about accepting their gay son or lesbian daughter. It could be a wonderful initiative that you support back where you are at, uh, that ensure the trickle down to the movement. Um, there are many issues and gaps that you can look and hopefully connect people to. There are many opportunities that are arising. And we just need more and more allies to come out. I strongly believe in building and synergizing movements and struggles. And therefore, it is wonderful to have allies everywhere, whether in diaspora or home. Back to the question around provision of PrEP and condoms, yet there is criminalization, right? Is that correct? Uh, so health has always been a backdoor strategy we've used for years. Um, we are seeing how the health discourse has been used by activists on the ground for years to engage government to tell government, listen, we don't want you to advocate for gay rights, but please provide for our health needs. And we've seen governments responding positively. They are rolling out PrEP, they're giving out condoms and lubricants, uh, but then you know, you've got the laws that are still being used by the same government to target and sense and you know, gay men and, and queer people. Uh, it's a double-edged sword that we are struggling with. Um, we, what we've seen is that in addition to uh, government providing all these things, we've got activists going to court and saying, listen, you cannot continue to provide us with this prevention commodities, yet there is laws that target us unfairly. And pushing and using any system or any law or any option to challenge those pockets of oppression that are still being used against gay men and, you know, um, MSM. Um, there are wonderful HIV programs um, going on. My key concern has always been, how do we generate evidence? How do we give more community and power to community organizations to decide on their health rights? We need to empower grassroots organizations to provide 
specific tailor-made interventions for queer people. Um, and I think if we continue supporting through that, and you know, giving these options to government and saying, listen, apart from condoms, you also need lube. Apart from lube, you also need a whole host of ABCD other fish, perhaps bears for our women. So there's, there's a way we can start that conversation, and I think we can move it, um, but it's a start. And I think um, we, should, we, should, we should move forward with the, with the notion of we've already opened the door, let us continue pushing it further, push the envelope further. And I think that's our strategy. And then afterwards, after 10 years, look back, appreciate the masterpiece that you've created. I think we'll, we'll end at, at that. Thank you so much, Dennis and Siaka. Give a big round of applause.